So one of the values uh, here at Christ the King is gospel centrality. It's one of the things that we value, and it's a, it's, there are questions that we ask pertaining to everything that we do in order to ensure that there is a gospel central element to what is going on and what's taking place. And so um, that flows over into the way that we... Uh, the way that our rhythms function on Sunday morning, right? Um, we take a few minutes every Sunday to to greet one another and to say hello and to meet new people uh, when the opportunity presents itself because um, the gospel informs the way that we relate to one another and the way that we live and relate in community. And so um, it's not just this, uh, this, uh, this transition point to, okay, how do we connect to these three things together or an effort to make things as awkward as possible. But it's really an effort to um, have the centrality of the gospel and a part of the rhythms of our service. And so um, an awesome opportunity each week to, uh, to be a part and to participate in that. Hey, we have a lot to look at today. And so um, if you have a Bible, open up to 1 Timothy. Um, if you turn on to your Bible, turn on to 1 Timothy. We'll also have it on the screen um, for you if you want to take advantage of that. And we have Bibles in the back if you would like to have one of those. Hey, that's our gift to you. Take that um, and read it, right? So um, we are in 1 Timothy. We are in week two of our time in 1 Timothy. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at what we saw in chapter 1. Since our 66 weeks that we spent in uh, the Gospel of Mark, we have finished the book of Ruth, um, and we have uh, looked at an entire chapter of Paul's first letter uh, to Timothy. And so, again, we are on record pace, guys, to like just continue on through these books. We're actually going to look at all of chapter 2 today. Um, we've said before, and we, we say often, that the Bible, a lot of times the section breaks in your Bibles are helpful. There are certain times that they're not helpful at all, and they actually serve to disrupt the rhythm uh, and the writing of the author, that there are ideas that are intended to be connected that are oftentimes disconnected as a result of chapter headings or certain uh, verse markers. And so... um, We're super uh, considerate of that as we work our way through particular books. It just so happens that chapter 2 flows really well right uh, through the end and on up to the edge of chapter 3. And so we're going to be looking at all of chapter 2 this morning. But in order to uh, maybe help us best approach our time in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy this morning, we really need to consider some things that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in which we see Paul laying out this holistic vision of the church. How did we get here? That's really what Paul is addressing in chapter 1. And over the next few chapters, he's going to lay out this vision, this holistic vision of the church. And in doing so, it becomes crystal clear that what a church believes will shape how a church Lives right. That's true individually, and that's true corporately. That what an individual believes shapes the way that we live, and what a church believes shapes the way that the church lives. This is a constant theme through this letter, as Paul provides instruction for the church and God's man. In this case, Timothy. Right. In chapter one, the call is really simple, and we can uh, we can just lay it out in three bullet points. Number one, know what is true. Number two, teach what is true. And number three, hold to what is true. That's what we see Paul laying out for Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, as we go into chapter 2 and all the way through the first half of chapter 6, we observe basic instruction for the church. And so this is where we are going to be this morning, and this is where we're going to be over the next few weeks as we work our way through up until the first half of chapter 6. We see emphasized things like the importance of prayer. We're going to be talking about that this morning and even what our prayer ought to look like and how what our prayer looks like informs our understanding of who God is and what he's doing. These are things that we're going to be talking about this morning. In addition, we see humanity's rebellion, rejection, and sin. Right? We see God's grace and his pursuit. We see his heart and the role of women in the church And the call to train and equip all those within the body for godliness. These are issues that we see addressed not only in chapter 2, but throughout the remainder of this letter. As we come into the second half of chapter 6 and come back to the commissioning 
of Timothy from Paul, re-emphasizing his point from chapter 1. And so if you, look at, if you look at the book of 1 Timothy, if you look at chapter 1 and you look at chapter 6, there are these bookends that we find on the book in which Paul commissions Timothy to defend and teach sound doctrine. Defend and teach sound doctrine, confident in the gospel's ability to save sinners and transform the human heart. We talked about this last week, how Paul recognizes this in his own life, how he says that his sin and his rebellion, right, up until a certain point in which he encounters Christ resurrected from the dead on this road to Damascus on his way to, ironically enough, persecute the church, how Paul looks back at that and he sees it as a display of the patience of God and his persistence and his pursuit Paul can say the things that he does about the heart of God and his desire to transform sinners by way of the gospel and the work of the Spirit because he has experienced it, right? And so we we start there, and then we step into this big picture of chapter 2, which is this. And if you take notes, this would be a really excellent thing to write down that's really going to serve to guide our time together today. God desires his church to share his heart for people. Right, that's aspect number one. That's element number one, that God desires his church to share his heart for people. So what about people? What are the elements? Well, their salvation and training in godliness. These are the issues that Paul is going to address in chapter two. God desires his church to share his heart for people, their salvation, and training in godliness. And so we've got justification, we've got sanctification, we've got the work of the church, right? We've got the training of the saints. All of that is present here in chapter in chapter 2. And we're going to observe this in three ways. <clears throat> three observations from 1 Timothy chapter 2. The first thing that we see is a call. A reality, number two, and then finally this encouragement toward reform. We see a call, a reality, and then reform. A call to what? Well, we see a call to pray for peace and to recognize and experience its benefits in the world. What benefit does peace have for God's people and the advancement of God's kingdom in this world? Why does Paul encourage Timothy and this church in Ephesus to pray for peace? We're going to talk about that. That's the call. Pray for peace. Secondly, we notice this reality, this reality of who God is and who we are in verses 3 and 4. And then finally, in verses 5 through 15, we see this encouragement towards reform. Paul's instruction for men and women in the church at Ephesus. This is where we are, and we've got uh, just a little bit of time to get there. And so um, let's go to God's Word, uh, and let's read the entirety of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning with this encouragement to pray for all people. This is God's word, and we are so incredibly thankful and grateful to have it. Beginning in verse 1. First of all, Paul writes, Then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge, the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, this is familiar, right? And there is one mediator between God and and men, the man Christ Jesus, verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, which had become popular opinion of those who oftentimes spoke in contrary to what Paul had to say, that he's lying and that his circumstances and the situations and trials and difficulties that he experienced are evidence of that. Paul says that is not the case. I am not lying. I'm telling the truth, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
I desire then, Paul writes, that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now this is what had been taking place in the church. Disunity, anger, quarreling, all as a result of unsound doctrine and individuals giving themselves over to speculative issues concerning the law and endless genealogies. This is all from chapter 1. As opposed to resting on and communicating the simplistic gospel of Christ. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel and modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who, present, who, who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. This is an interesting verse, and we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking what Paul is saying here. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There's a lot to address here, and so let's ask the Lord to help us to understand what his word has to say today. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your kindness, for your generosity and for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand uh, the intent for the original audience here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And that in doing so, we might better understand how to apply your word by the strength of your spirit to your glory in our lives. You're good, and you do good, and your word is profitable and beneficial for us. And so uh, we again pray today that you would train us up in it. And it's in the name of our King Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. We have to begin with this call, right? This, this call for prayers and for peace, understanding its benefit within the context and culture, okay? In chapter 1, we see that it is rounded off by way of this emphasis on Jesus' commitment to save sinners, right? That's where we concluded our time in chapter 1 last week, that, that Jesus has come, right, the incarnation and his perfect life, right, his self-sacrificing death on our behalf is all in order that the Father might be glorified and that sinners might be saved. And this leads us into chapter 2 and Paul's exhortation to pray for unbelievers. That's the exhortation in verses 1 and 2, to pray for unbelievers as well as the church's understanding of evangelism and God's work through these efforts. We're going to look in our second observation more at this from verses 3 and 4. But the first thing that we observe is Paul calling Timothy and those in Ephesus to pray for, verse 1, all people. To pray for all people and their salvation. This isn't just an aimless prayer, but there is this, this encouragement towards the desire of the salvation of all people. And that God's church, right, that, that the church of Christ might be about praying and petitioning the Lord for this work. We pray confidently, believing that God is calling unbelievers into faith. That's the first observation, to pray for all people. And then we transition into the second, not altogether disconnected from the first, includes prayer for kings and those in positions of power and the decisions that they make. And what we find is that there's an interweaving between these two. The prayer for all people and then this transition into the prayer for kings and those in positions of power really relate in this bigger picture goal that Paul is driving Timothy, the church in Ephesus, and you and I towards this morning, Paul's desire is really simple and informative for you and I. Paul's desire is for God's people to live and, verse 2, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's Paul's desire. Right? Paul's desire is that the Christian life would, get this, be a peaceful life. He encourages Timothy and the church at Ephesus to pray for these groups, that they would what? Well, that they would look to God for salvation and for wisdom and discernment, and that as a result, there would be peace. Paul's desire is peace. 
Peace is Paul's desire, and it's a desire that is pleasing to God. But, but it's helpful for us to understand that it's not peace simply for the sake of peace. Otherwise, this sounds like every other Miss America speech ever, right? Like it sounds exactly like that. And so what is Paul's desire for peace to be realized among God's people and ultimately in the world? Well, to help us understand this, let's connect it with, with two other issues that we observe in the world that we would both say are, ma- we would all say are major problems that we would desire as God's people and as like a, a compassionate people, just people who have compassion to be about. Let's consider the issue of world hunger and the global water crisis. Okay, as we're talking about peace, let's, let's transfer over here for just a moment and let's consider two other issues that anyone and everyone ought to be able to get on board with. Of course, the idea of people dying because they don't have access to these resources is tragic. Right? And we, as God's people, desire to see these issues eradicated. But as we've already said, anybody can get on board with that. Right, Believer or unbeliever can say, yeah, absolutely. Like the issue of, of clean water right, and the deaths that these waterborne parasites cause in the lives of, of people, young and, and elderly, right, throughout the world who don't have access to clean water is a major issue. Right, World hunger is a major issue. We can all get on board with that. And so the question is then this, why do we, and by we, I mean God's people, okay, why do we, why does the church desire to see an end to the global food shortage and the availability of healthy life-sustaining drinking water? Well, the answer is really simple, because these things assist God's people in pointing towards his provision and the life and satisfaction that he alone is capable of bringing, right? Consider John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, we see this dialogue between Jesus and this Samaritan woman about what? Water, right? Water and its availability, right? And the benefits that it brings to an individual's life. Only Jesus uses this physical water to what? To point towards the satisfaction that he alone is capable of bringing that actually satisfies on a much deeper level than the physical water does, right? Like, of course, absolutely, there's this desire to, as God's people bearing his image, desiring good for others, to provide these resources. But in providing these resources, what separates us, the church, from the rest of culture who can get on board with any good cause is that we desire to leverage these things in order to display the great love of God and to point to his sustaining us in Christ Jesus. That's what it's all about. That's what we are all about. Here, this peace that God's people desire that leads them to pray for wisdom, even for unbelieving leaders, is because peace creates, get this, an ideal setting for sharing Jesus with others. Here's what this looks like, right? We, we sit down and we saw a great example of this. And I don't even know that it's fully peace. Again, I'm not up on the news. I don't watch it as much as I ought to. In fact, most of my news comes via Twitter, which is probably awful. And so don't judge me, but pray for me that I would really lean into and begin looking to more reliable outlets for wisdom, right? But, but here's, what we're, here's what we're saying, that as we, as we see in the world examples of potential peace, just a few weeks ago, we saw the leader uh, from North Korea and South Korea, right, come together, shake hands, cross borders, hang out, dap one another, right? We saw it going on. And everyone was like, man, this is incredible. Like, look at what is happening here. Here's why God's people desire peace. Because when peace is realized, when, is it, is it, when it is experienced within a culture and within the world, we are, as God's people, able to say, look at this. Right? Look, look at what's going on around us. Do you see all of this peace? Do you see the peace? Do you see the handshaking and what's going on? Yeah, here's the deal. Our king does this. 
Right? We desire peace. Paul encourages Timothy and the church at Ephesus to pray for peace because peace creates this peach tree dish for sharing the gospel. It's an ideal setting because we're able to leverage what's going on in the world around us to point back to the goodness, the kindness, and the work of our king. Jesus does this. Not only do we able to, are we able to talk of this, but we're able to talk of the need for deeper peace and the available uh, reconciliation that God makes, uh, that God presents through Christ. Let's imagine the two ways that Jesus brings about peace. Jesus produces peace between two earthly parties. Right? Maybe it's more than two people here, but let's imagine it on that level for just a moment. Right? Warring nations, right? He it produces peace. Warring families. Right? Does anybody have a, a family that is so chaotic and so dysfunctional that you look to the Lord and say, you alone are capable of redeeming this. Like, only you can bring peace into this situation. I do, right? Like, that, that's what it looks like for me, man. I sit back sometimes and my mom and I will chat about what's going on in, our, in, in the family because we live here in Carrollton. And uh, my mom and dad and the rest of uh, my family really lives back in Knoxville. Go Vols. And um, so we will uh, talk about kind of what's going on uh, in the family, right? And I'm just going, oh my gosh, like, I love my family, but man, this is insane, right? Like this, this, we need peace. Like we need peace in this situation. You guys are not unfamiliar with this, right? You understand this as, as, as well. There's great hope in this realization, Right? There's great hope in this realization that God can produce peace where dysfunction and chaos and the lack of peace are like abundantly present, right? Like He can do that. And so, for those of us who are experiencing situations and circumstances like that, what is the hope? Well, it's to look to Christ, right? Like the Prince of Peace, the author of peace, who brings about and produces peace. We see it happen on a horizontal level, right? Incredibly hopeful, especially for those of us with incredibly chaotic families, right? Because you know what a stress and strain that can be and produce, the anxiety that it brings about. Man, what hope to know that Christ can produce peace. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop on a horizontal level. But it, it, even more amazingly, we see that Jesus brings peace on a vertical level, that he brings peace between an individual and God. This is even more amazing. Recognizing humanity's hostility, right? Like, do, we, do we get this? Do we recognize like, our natural condition? Do we recognize our hostility? To and, and toward God and his plan and his purpose naturally. This is what Paul says in chapter 1 verse 2 when he emphasizes the grace, mercy, and peace that they have been recipients of from God. This idea is totally contrary to cultural expectation of Christ followers, both historically and currently. And here's what I mean. The idea that Christ produces peace and that where God's people go, peace ought to follow is an idea that has historically been rejected by the world. We get a great picture of this in the book of Acts. If you've never read through, if you've never considered the book of Acts and understood its place in the story, the redemptive story that God is telling over the course of 66 books, do that. Do that. And the letter that we see that is the continuation of the gospel of Luke, we see that there is this rhetoric from specific groups that where Christ's people go, so goes chaos. This is the narrative in the book of, of Acts. Only at the end of the book, it becomes clear that this is not the case at all. We, in fact, observe Paul living in Rome, living contrary to popular Jewish belief, peaceably, right? The chaos that had followed Paul as a result of those who had desired ill against Paul pursuing after him in an effort to, uh, to put down the gospel and the news of the resurrection of this Jesus is that is eliminated, pushed to the side and to the margins. Paul, we see, is able to live in abundant peace in Rome. That the narrative is, is false, right? That the narrative is not true. 
And we see Paul taking advantage of the peace that he enjoys in Rome, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about Jesus without hindrance. And so this idea that peace naturally follows the people of Jesus ought to be one that is observable in the culture around us. That even when we deal with issues that produce and bring about confrontation, that there is a peaceable manner in which Christ's people go about doing things. All of this assists in bringing understanding to Paul's desire for what within the church at Ephesus? What is it all about? Hey, in Ephesus, chaos is taking place. Confusion. There's a lack of peace as a result of these men, chapter 1, teaching a doctrine that is contrary to what Christ had to say. And who he is and what matters. Right, And so we see that there is this desire from Paul for the church in Ephesus for peace and unity to be brought. And it makes sense as we begin to understand how all of this fits together. It assists in our understanding of the importance of peace and unity to be present, not only in this church, but in this church. Because these characteristics are representative of who God is. What he enjoys in himself, perfect Trinitarian peace, and what he calls us into. Right? What he brings about in the world as he brings his kingdom. Here's the deal. Let's say this. Let's just settle in for a second. Let's come back together as a family and let's say this. That peace in the church is a gospel issue. Right? That if there's a lack of peace, then we need to go back to the gospel in order to find and realize reconciliation among parties. Peace is a gospel issue and it's an apologetic. Now, what does that mean? What is an apologetic? Well, it's, a, it's an argument for the existence of, right? And so when we talk about peace being observable within the church and when there is a lack of peace for peace to be pursued after in, in holy wisdom and the strength of the spirit, it serves to shout to the world around us of the character of our God. Does that make sense? Peace is an apologetic. If we look at the church if from an outsider's perspective, we look into the church. Here it is. It's the issue that we see Paul addressing in 1 Timothy. And we say, there is no peace among these Jesus people. They're just fighting with one another. They can't seem to get it on all together and to get on the same page. And they deal with one another in a really hostile way. Man, that does not point towards or support the existence of a sovereign creator who reconciles people to one another and to himself. Does that make sense? Do we get this? Why is the presence of peace so important? Well, because... It emphasizes the hope of the gospel right, and serves as an apologetic supporting the existence of our sovereign creator. So the encouragement from Paul to Timothy is this. As you lead this church, lead them toward mission to pray for, right? To, to pray for peace, Within the world, because peace creates, again, this ideal environment for sharing the gospel. This is a mission issue. It's a gospel issue, right? It's an apologetic, and it's an issue of mission. Desire peace, because as peace is realized, it allows individuals to sit down with one another and to really begin sharing and dialoguing the great hope that is available through Christ Jesus, right? Do we get this? It's a, it's a, it's a mission issue. As you pray for wisdom and discernment that produces, again, the word of the hour, peace. This ideal setting for sharing Jesus. Paul writes that this is a, verse 3, good or right work for Timothy and those in Ephesus to practice. As a people who understand what is at stake, we know what is at stake. If mission is rejected and peace is pushed to the side, separation from God and eternal shame, all a result of our rebellion, our desire is for God to be worshipped by all people as they know, feel, 
and experience the great love with which God has loved us. It is pleasing, Paul says, verses 5 and 6, in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so it's at this point that we transition out of this call and into this reality, who God is and who we are. In the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. As God's people rescued by grace, we embrace the biblical doctrine of election that says this, that salvation is from beginning to end a work of God and that we are so dead in our sin that we require him to see us and to set his specific salvific affection on us so that we might know, love, and worship him. We are so dead that this is what is required. This is what God must do if we are to experience life as mission people. Unaware of those that God is calling to himself, Paul's encouragement to Timothy is to pray compassionate, confident, fervent prayers, asking God to save. We believe this about salvation. This is how it happens. That God does it and that we are so dead and that we are so lost that it requires intentionality from our God to pursue us and to rescue us, to save us, to breathe life into us again. This is the requirement. But as God's people, we don't know. His ways are higher than our ways. And oftentimes we observe those who seem to be furthest from that which is true and good and and admirable and right and God glorifying. And we go, no way. There's no way that this person can become a Christian. Many said that of Paul even after his conversion, right? Like this dude was so wicked that there's no way that God could have done this, right? Only we see that he, that he does. And as a result, we pray confident prayers, fervent prayers, petitioning our God to save sinners, to save the lost. And so we consider the doctrine of election and the call of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. And we ask ourselves, perhaps, do we see inconsistency or contradiction in God's word and thus his character? And the answer, unequivocally, simply, is no, we do not. We do not see contradiction. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Not only is this not inconsistent, but it's totally consistent within the character of God. Displaying, get this, his compassion and his heart in a beautiful way. I'm going to take us on a quick journey to the book of Exodus and then to the book of Isaiah. Hang with me for a second. What does God have to say about himself? In Exodus 34 verse 6, God describes himself to Moses as a God who is. Character traits, aspects, take note of these. Merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In Exodus 33, verse 19, again, we see our God, a God who is gracious to whom he will be gracious and shows mercy to whom he will show mercy. God self-describes himself as merciful, gracious, forgiving. And if we were to continue on in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, just... In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He invites the thirsty to come to him and to to drink of the waters of salvation and to be, Isaiah 55, verse 1, satisfied. We see the desires of God alongside the responsibility of men highlighted in Isaiah 45 and 55. Only we are confronted again and again with our inability reflected in our clear lack of desire. Here's what we're saying. The invitation has been sent out. The issue, however, is that we are totally unresponsive. And so how does God's word informed the way that we understand our death. I love the story that Jesus shares at a, about a certain party in Matthew chapter 22. If you've never read this story, 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to read a portion of it, but man, go and read it in its full context. It's incredible. Jesus is, is discussing the kingdom. And we see from Matthew chapter 22, from God's word, an informing of our understanding of our death and God's great generosity and work. Here it is. Matthew 22, verse 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Man, what an incredible picture. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, look at this. I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding, right? Come to the party. But they paid no attention. It gets worse. And they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and they treated him shamefully and killed them. As a result, naturally, the king, verse 7, was angry and he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And so what are, we, what are we saying here? What are we emphasizing here? Verse 5 touches on the degree of the rejection of those invited. We see that not only has humanity rejected the invitation, not only is humanity unresponsive, but we are hostile. We see another image of this in Matthew chapter 22, verses 33 through 39, as the tenants entrusted to work the master's vineyard rebel, and they kill the heir and his son to take for themselves the inheritance. What is this all about? Man, the desires of God have been rejected, and as a result, we have condemned ourselves. This is what we learn about ourselves. This is the reality. Only great gospel hope in the person of Jesus. God, in compassion and generosity, sent his son, chapter 1, verse 15, to save sinners. This is who God is. Okay? This is who God is. Verse 5, one God. Like Paul emphasizes the only one who is able to serve as our rescuer, the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Verse 6, good news with benefits that are experienced through repentance and faith. Right? This is the proclamation. This is the proclamation that, that, that thrives in an environment of peace that Paul encourages Timothy and the church to pray for. This is the testimony at the proper time that leads to salvation. Verses 6 and 7. And I love this picture. I was having a conversation. I can't even remember who it was with this past week, to be honest. But I told them I was going to use this. It might have been in my DNA group. It might have been Mac and Seth that we talked about this. But when we understand who we are and who God is, there's this, imagine this, this picture. Imagine this, this image of this ocean, right? This, this infinitely wide, infinitely deep, infinitely clear ocean in which we are all bobbing, lifeless at the bottom, just bumping into one another. This is who we are. This is the picture that's painted here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Only God in great compassion and, and mercy, Ephesians chapter 2, reaches into this infinitely deep, infinitely wide, infinitely clear sea of death, and he saves us, right? He breathes life into our lungs, and he gives us new hearts, our hearts of stone, rebellious hearts that beat against God and desire to kill him and to have his inheritance for ourselves on our terms are removed, and they're replaced with hearts of flesh that beat for and desire God's glory to be realized on this entire globe. This is the picture. Right? This is the mission. And thus, verses 1 and 2, pray for peace. Pray for peace among the people so that this news might indeed be 
proclaimed. We see the call. We see the reality. And then we step into, and this appears at least initially to be a bit uh, disjoined, right, from from our time so far in these two points. But we're going to look now at this reform that Paul calls the church into and how it emphasizes the role of the church not only in evangelism, living mission outside, but discipleship. That is, living living the Christ-centered, gospel-oriented life inside the church. We see Paul's instruction for men and women in the church at Ephesus. Paul instructs Timothy towards a safeguarding of the church and a discipleship of a certain group of influential women who have adopted certain talking points from these false teachers and have in this really strange way ostracized them from the rest of the fellowship. That's where we see this issue concerning their attire, right? It's, it's all about, contextually here, we are seeing this emphasis on the ostracization of these women as they have um, elevated themselves both in position and um, in terms of like their, their outward appearance above the fellowship. They begin doing certain things that as a result of their training, they have no business doing, right? Because they've been trained by these Uh, these proclaimers of this false doctrine. It had become more about outward appearance than internal transformation that is brought about through gospel proclamation, which is what Paul's been encouraging Timothy and his towards uh, up into this point. And as a result, there's this encouragement. Don't let them teach. Right? Don't, don't let them teach, right? Because there is, of course, a, a contextual element here. Some argue that, uh, that this is a, a church order issue within this church, and some argue that this is a church order issue within the church, right? When we talk of uh, the Apostles' Creed in the beginning, we speak of the Holy Catholic Church. We're not Catholic, newsflash, in case you didn't know. We're not Catholic, right? But we adopt this, this meaning of that word that informs our understanding of the global church, the universal church, all of God's people, right? Believing the one true gospel and trusting in the one true mediator for the salvation of our sins. That's what we're talking about here. Some look at this passage and go, this is a this church issue. And some look at this and go, this is a this church issue. And the answer is found in the middle, that it's both. It's a this church issue and it's a this church issue. The text doesn't support that it's only about the church in Ephesus. J.D. Greer, who, um, funny enough, is actually up for election as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, which we're a part of and we support. We love J.D. Greer. I love J.D. Greer. I've learned a lot from J.D. Greer over the years. wrote a really incredible article a number of years ago about this particular passage and what Paul means in this section about women and their role in the church and how men are to respond and even this issue at the very end concerning salvation through childbearing, which just to like, just to kind of let it out early is all about Jesus. It's all, it's all about him. It's all about Christ and how we are of course saved uh, through him. He writes this in 1 Timothy 2.12, the apostle Paul commands that uh, a woman is forbid to teach or to exercise authority over a man in the church. Paul bases his rule for Timothy's church in the created order, which means it applies to all churches. He goes through um, the, the act of rebellion. He mentions Adam and Eve in the created order and then even how they have rebelled, each one's culpability in this, in this act. The grammar that Paul uses indicates that he has in mind two things that he wishes to forbid, teaching and authority. And so as we consider order for the church, there's a lot that we take away from this particular portion. In other words, Paul was not only saying that a woman cannot rule as an elder, but there is a certain kind of teaching that she must not do in the assembled church. But it is clear, however, that women are given the gift and responsibility to teach in God's kingdom. Listen to what he says as he continues on, because I, I feel like we can read this and we can go, all right, like, Wait a tick. All the ladies are getting angry about what's going on right here. And so let's iron out what Paul is talking about and how this brings clarification to the roles within the church. Almost all complementarians concede that women can and should teach in the church in some way. That is, if teach is defined as, and who would want more than this, explanation of gospel content and exhortations to believe and obey it. 
It is only a certain kind of teaching that is forbidden to women. For example, John Piper, who is among the most conservative of complementarians, writes, In context, I think 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, means that women shouldn't be the authoritative teachers in the church. We believe this. We support this. I.e., they shouldn't be elders. Piper goes on to say, however, that women like Beth Moore and Elizabeth Elliot... If you're unfamiliar with Elizabeth Elliot, flattering words from Piper about Elizabeth Elliot here, should be free to write, speak, and teach publicly, and that men can and should learn from them. He himself has. About the ministry of Elizabeth Elliot, whom he calls the Beth Moore of his generation, he says, I love it. (laughs) I love it. He cheers her on, sock it to him, Elizabeth. She was so in your face about laying down your life and being radically obedient and totally committed that it just blew people away, especially when we know her story and in the, in the circumstances that her family experienced. Tzibidi Anawele uh, wrote an article concerning complementarianism and the responsibility of the church to teach women and a women's responsibility to teach in which he argues for the preservation of male headship. We're about that. We love the preservation of male headship, that men ought to be men and live as God has designed us to live. And leadership in the local church consistent with the complementarian vision of the Bible, along with a wider understanding of how women may serve in the church in the Great Commission under the authority of elders by using their teaching gifts perhaps more widely than is sometimes allowed in complementarian circles. Are we still together? This is a lot, right? But this was so good, I couldn't not give you guys this. He says this, I think that we would be healthier churches And our sisters would have healthier experiences in our churches if we could envision a wider field of usefulness for women that includes teaching in appropriate settings and does not view every instance of teaching as a threat to male headship. Humble yourselves, men, right? Humble yourselves, men. That's what I hear. Him saying here, I'm a complementarian, but the Bible teaches that there's more women can and should do in this area without overturning the structure of authority also plainly taught in the Bible. What are we saying here? Here is the responsibility of of male elders within the church, a, a position that is reserved for men that we would train up our brothers and our sisters in Christ to faithfully proclaim sound doctrine and salvation through Christ, that opportunities would be provided and encouraged, right? And that's an area where even I, and I'm calling myself back to the center here, right? That not only would opportunities be provided, but they would be encouraged, That faithful women, God-loving and God-fearing women would be provided opportunities to, within the contexts of church order, teach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. This is what Paul is encouraging Timothy and the church at Ephesus towards in light of this absolute mess that Timothy is experiencing here. The call from 1 Timothy chapter 2 is really clear. It's really clear. It is, it is prayer, right? It's, it's good works, it's godliness, it's peace and proclamation. And that these three things will be present in an all-encompassing way among the body of Christ. And then there is this last verse, verse 15. We close our time here. He writes... Yet she will be saved through childbearing. There's this emphasis at the end on on birth, right? And when we understand this in light of the grander narrative that's being told, if we don't just pull this out and go, okay, contextually here, right here, what does this mean? We have to consider what Paul knows to be true concerning the promise of God to rescue people by way of the seed of the woman that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, at which point the plan is laid out for us, but has existed all the way back into eternity past within God himself. 
right? That there is the coming of this seed that makes all of these things, right? Submission uh, within the body and and uh, the observance of headship and humility within the body and encouragement towards mission and prayer and fervency and trust in God to save sinners. I mean, this is a heart, a mind, a practice that is informed by Christ and by Christ alone. We are rescued through Jesus. Jesus models everything that we're talking about here. All of the unity, all of the peace. Christ brings it. He has brought it. He is bringing it. He will bring it. That's what this is all about, right? As we take of the bread and the cup. Every week, what do we remember? We remember the coming of the kingdom, right? We remember that our king gave of himself sacrificially on the tree so that we might be rescued, so that we might be saved, so that we might be made alive. We're plucked from the depths of death and we're made alive, right? And we look forward to this fellowship meal again of the seed that brings salvation, that we will be with him, that God's people, that God's people will be with our king. Man, what incredibly good news. We, we, we have to land there. We have to land there knowing that God does this, that he's capable, that he's able, that he's working, and that there's a role for his people in this. So let us, let us be a, as we see Timothy encouraged toward here, prayerful people, right? Let's be a people that love sound doctrine. Let's be a people that love functionality within the church, the way that God has designed it, knowing that it ought not produce disunity, but it ought to bring peace as love and care is displayed in a way that becomes an apologetic to the world around us. Man, that's good news. That's good news. And we are grateful to Christ that he does it. So let's pray and then let's take this meal together as a fellowship in unity, enjoying great joy that we have in Christ together.